Now, the, the full intent, just so you know, the full intent whenever I was planning out this sermon series, because we spent about a year and a half in the Gospel of John, and then as I was praying, I told you at the beginning, God led me to Titus, um, which is great because as a church plant, Titus and the Timothys are really good like church planter and pastor manuals. They're called the pastoral epistles, and they, they talk to pastors about how a church should look, how a church should function, what the pastor should do, what it should not do. And if we move through Titus, then we started with what biblical eldership, biblical leadership looked like. We moved on to what the false teachers were doing in the church. We looked at what gospel community looks like, what, a, what God wants his biblical community to look like. Then uh, Andy gave us gospel encouragement. He reminded us what the gospel is. And then the full intent and purpose was to end with good works. Like it was going to be a five-week sermon. And as I started reading... I had to hit pause because I got to these three verses that are kind of like, you know, you're driving down a route and you know where you're going and you get there and then there's traffic cones that hit a detour. And so the way you thought you were going to go is not the way that you get to go. And that's what God did the other night. I'm sitting there and I'm reading, picking up right at verse 9, going to go to the end, and I'm just going to kind of skip a stone across 9, 10, and 11. And then as I was getting ready to do that, God's like, oh, no, 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 these are your detour cones. This is the direction you're going right now. And um, I really felt compelled by the Lord that, that this is where we should be, and, and it's only right. And so we're going to start in Titus chapter 3, verse 9. And uh, I've lost my place here. I apologize for that. Here we go. Um, as we do it, the conviction I had the other night was that if we did not stop at 9, 10, 11... It would be an incredible disservice to me as a pastor, an incredible disservice to you as a congregation and people of God. Because we always say absolutely we believe in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, which says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And we say we believe that, right? But I'm not going to lie. In my mind, I'm like, well, I can take 9 through 15 and just kind of package it up real quick, and I can just go on. But we, what we as Cross Life also say is that we're an Acts 2.42 church, that, that we love the simplicity of holding these four main things, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. So that's what we want Cross Life to be about. These four things, and to be honest, whenever I got to the end of Titus and I got to these three verses, I'm like, well, we need to make sure that we're being committed to the apostles' teaching in verses 9, 10, and 11. Right? And I had another verse that was really pushing this conviction whenever God said, hey, here are your, here are your road cones. You can't go this way. You have to go this way. Your detour, your arrow is going this way. Here's your three traffic cones. And it was Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, which say... Right after verse 10, which says that Christ leads us in triumphal procession as he's going to his heavenly throne. It says, and he, Christ, he, Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the overseers, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that's a whole lot. But here's what Ephesians 4 basically comes down to. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints so that we could be mature in Christ. Right? So the leaders of the church are to make sure that everyone is mature in Christ. Everyone who sits under them, that's the, that's the goal. Like the church is meant to equip the saints. And so now I'm going to go all the way back up to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. This is going to be our bridge to next week. Listen to it one more time. Because our chief mode of equipping in a church is to give you the word. Like that's, we, we, the way that the pastor should equip the church is by delivering the word. And I'm going back to 9, 10, 11. And, and what do these mean for us? And why are they important? Because they are, they're the scripture. And all scripture, y'all, is breathed out by God. And all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Listen to this. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So I was ready to jump to those good works at the end of Titus. Like, we should be doing those good, good works. I was ready for that. That's, that's going to be challenging in and of itself. That'll be convicting in and of itself. But I was just ready to, to go right there. And what I was willing to do is to not look at all Scripture like I was supposed to as a pastor. I was willing to say, hey, we're going to hit these, remember, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure you know that and go on. But at the same time, God said, oh, you don't get to do that. Like, the great thing about expository preaching is that we preach every word and passage as much as we can. The hard thing about it is we preach every word and passage as much as we can. And so we get to these passages where, where it is, it's good to pause and it's good to wrestle with what we see there. So if we want to be a people devoted to God's Word, we've got to look at these passages, we've got to wrestle with them, and, and we realize that this is what it means to be devoted to His Word, to be equipped by His Word, and to be a mature believer. All right, so with that said, our passage today is on biblical church discipline. It's what everybody wants to preach about. It's what everybody's totally comfortable with. It's just like if you said, hey, next week, by the way, we're going to be talking about sin, um, especially as we see it upheld to the law, there's going to be some people that are like, you know what, I think that we need to schedule a family vacation next week. We'll catch up. We'll listen to the podcast. Like, there's a convenient reason to be gone. Nobody really wants to, like, be excited about preaching on church discipline. Because whenever you start talking about church discipline, you even watch pastors, and they kind of bristle up a little bit. And these are pastors who know the Word. They love the Word. But they start to kind of bristle up just a little bit because that makes us uncomfortable to talk about discipline. I mean, to talk about church discipline means that, that the church is going to do something and they're going to discipline somebody for something. And it's really uncomfortable because aren't we supposed to be a people of grace and mercy and love and tolerance and just let everything go so that everything's peaceable and we can have unity? Yes and no. So I think, I really believe we see this in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, there is a call, there is a charge, there is a, a standard for biblical church discipline. It's only one glimpse, but it's a way that we can actually look at this. All said and done, packaging all that together. If Titus is God's word through Paul to Titus about how the church should look and function, then what is God telling Titus through Paul that, and telling us that he wants his church to look and function like that there must be biblical eldership you must guard the gospel guard the bank that there must be biblical community and that there must be a standard so that the church can function and that everybody doing all these things will accomplish the good works of christ that's what titus shows us all throughout so we can't miss this crucial ingredient all right so i know you're ready all right so biblical church discipline or here's something that's easier to swallow okay uh, uh we could also call it a warning and a prescription of what to be careful of and how to respond. So if you don't like church discipline, then here is a kind warning and charge to be mindful of these things so that we know how to respond as a church. Um, that's a lot more. If, if we called it that, people would be more excited. You'd be like, oh, what do we need to be warned about? Okay, we can also package it together into church discipline. Um, all of you, as you become members of Cross Life Fort Smith, and you look at our statement of faith, it says that we will be submissive to and accountable to church discipline. And I always want to caution people and be like, Let, let's talk about that real quick. You know what church discipline really comes down to? If we, see, if we see people kind of bristle up, and I get it, it sounds like a heavy, aggressive thing. It, it connotes ideas of people being pulled to the front of the church and all their sins being put on public display, and we nail those to the wall so that everybody can see what everybody's doing wrong, and we're going to be real heavy-handed. Y'all, true, biblical, gracious church discipline is loving and restorative in nature. But it does see a charge on the church to protect the holiness and integrity of the church for the sake of God. But if church discipline sounds too heavy, another term we could use would be accountability church accountability that's what it really comes down to and maybe if we called it that people would be like no that makes a whole lot of sense but that word discipline it's it's really charged as a the head of a school it's a really charged word because whenever new family comes in it's not uncommon to get the question well what kind of discipline do you do here and you can hear that there's a lot of weight in that so let's just kind of step back 
Let's read Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, and let this shape what we think of as church discipline. And, and let's see that it is something that the church historically has practiced, and that there is a good reason that we are to practice it, though it is not common in our culture right now. All right, with that said, Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 says this. But, Paul writes, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Man, that's a good verse. All right, y'all, let's pray, and then let's push into this. Our God, we have your word open before us. I pray, Lord, that, that we wrestle with it. And Lord, that we, we wrestle with the conviction that we have, but ultimately, Lord, we submit to the authority of the word. And that we see here, Lord, that there is a description of how you instructed Titus through Paul to respond to dissensions within the church. Lord, help me to communicate clearly enough. But Lord, at the end of the day, may we, may we sit there and just stare at your word over and over, wrestling with it. And Lord, may your spirit do the work that I can't do and I was never meant to do. But Lord, may your word take root and grow within us. Lead us in truth. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth, Lord, and we love you. Help us to tremble at your word. Amen. So there's the instruction. Um, three points, three kind of frameworks for how this is going to work because this is kind of a different uh, passage for us. Number one, we're going to look at the context and the concern. So Paul's writing this. What's the context of when he's writing it? Because I think that that's incredibly important. So the context and then Paul's concern. The second thing, we're going to look at Paul's instruction to Titus. And then the third is we're going to look at the importance for the church. In other words, why in the world is, are these brief passages so important? So, number one, a look at the context and concern for this passage. All right, so take a look at this with me. Because context always matters, right? That's something we've said from the very beginning. Context always matters. Do you realize the hard right turn that, that Paul just took in this passage? I mean, he's here at the end of the letter. He said, hey, I'm Paul. I'm writing because of the gospel of God has saved me. I'm writing to Titus, my true child in the common faith. Raise up biblical elders that look this way. Contend with false teachers who act this way. Make sure the community looks this way. Remind them of the gospel looks this way. And then he says, by the way, as people rise up and have dissensions, have nothing to do with them, keep on going, do your good works. I mean, he just kind of throws it in there. I mean, it's kind of an odd passage if we lose the context. Like, if we just take this passage, which is what we are famous for doing in our churches, and we just say, we're going to preach... Titus 3, 9 through 11, and we're just going to focus on that, and we take it out of context, it seems like a really heavy charge. It doesn't seem very biblical or Christian in a lot of ways to me. Because I look at Jared and I'm like, hey, by the way, uh, foolish or stupid controversies have nothing to do with them. Dissensions, quarrels about the law, they're unprofitable. And we're, I mean, it just seems like advice. But pull this thing into context, because you know what Paul just did? Paul just shared the gospel he clearly laid out the gospel. There's no doubt about it. If they are listening to this letter, you know what all the hearers just heard? The gospel. Because as Paul wrote this letter, the common church practice is that they would take this letter that was written to Titus and it would be read to everyone who was there. And so everybody in, who's listening just heard about, yes, false teachers. And so false teachers are sitting there and like, <laughs> and they're ready to go after Paul. But people are being uh, encouraged to look for what biblical leadership truly looks like. But they just heard the gospel. And as he shares the gospel, he says, by the way, at the end of the gospel, and then let's so just, just listen to this. Here's the way it all. Go back to verse 4. Because it seems like an odd passage. It seems heavy until you hear the context of it. But when the goodness, y'all, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now, if you will imagine that you're in that congregation, you're hearing this letter read. And so we're used to, we're used to speakers, 
standing at the front up here and just telling you what we get out of the verse and leading you to understand it. But that's kind of how we think about church. There's a pastor who's up here and he's going to share his knowledge. What would happen in this case, again, is here's this letter straight from Paul. And Paul writes it. So they're about to hear the gospel. So they're pressing in when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Y'all, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He, Jesus, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Y'all, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. I mean, you pull it together and you see that Paul is not just, he doesn't just have something that's bothering him right now. He's saying, you better guard that gospel. And Titus, here's what all of your energy goes towards. It goes to proclaiming the gospel. And everybody who is in listening shot and earshot of this, you need to remember that it was the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior who saved us because of His goodness and His mercy, not because of our works. And you better guard the bank because people are coming. And whenever they come, they're going to rise up within, is what Scripture tells us, and they're going to try and distract you from the gospel. So that's the context of it. It totally changes everything for me. Here's all the good news. But with that good news, you have to understand that whenever that good news comes in, there's going to be the bad news, and somebody's going to want to come in, and they're going to want to distort that. Y'all, when the grace of God is preached, then the spirit of sin is going to rise up as well. It's going to do it within us, and it's going to do it within the church. Whether naively or intentionally, we want to believe that this is a safe place, that the church is a safe place, it's just where Christians go, that everyone who comes there loves God, wants the things of God, wants to glorify and praise God, and either we're naive, and I love that, or we intentionally don't want to believe that there could be evil within the church. But Scripture shows us a different picture. Scripture shows us that whenever the people of God come together, that the enemy is ready to move as well. We meet together so that we can be equipped, so that we can be encouraged, but we also need to be on guard. We always need to be aware that that whenever we proclaim the gospel, it's also going to bring open hostility from the enemy. Even inside of us, we're sitting there, we'll hear the gospel and and all of a sudden we're distracted? Or there's something that's just really overwhelming and we can't really marvel at the gospel anymore. It happens within us internally, but it also happens without us externally. That there are people with, that sit within the church that are here because they believe that that's all it takes to be a part of the church is just to sit there. They're not changed by Christ. They're not changed by God. There's no gospel conversion. There's just this decision that they decide to be a part of the church. I put it this way too, when the cross is upheld, there will be those who, because of their own desire to sin, they will seek to divide the people of God. That what God has brought together, Satan will seek to separate. That's Paul's point here. The point that he's really driving to in that context is that God has brought us out of darkness and into light. And this is what we should insist on. These things are trustworthy. These things are good. But whenever we insist and trust in these things, you also need to be aware that there are people who do not insist and trust on these things. And whenever they come in, you need to understand that you don't have to tolerate it, basically. There's a reason that the church comes together. It's because the church is the body of Christ. I said it earlier, we tend to focus or we tend to think in our American mindset, and I, I don't necessarily mean that in a, in a negative way, it's just a reality. We tend to think of the church more as a business and an organization. And there's a CEO at the top, and there's people in their positions doing what they're supposed to do. But Scripture shows us that the church is an, is an organism and not an organization. That it's a living, breathing thing. 
and that each member has a function within the church. And each of us has a responsibility. And so within that organization, I'm sorry, within that organism, separation can happen. That's exactly what Satan wants. What God brings together through His gospel, bringing all these people from all different walks of life and redeeming us by the blood of His Son, bringing us together into the church. Satan hates it and he despises it and he will seek to divide it and separate it. Y'all, we live in a time of cheap church um, and cheap accountability. And Titus 3, 9 through 11 reminds us that we can't live that way, that we were never meant to live that way, that there, there is something that we need to guard and we need to guard the unity of the church and the gospel that we proclaim. Basically what this tells us is that everyone who sits in a church doesn't sit there for the same reasons as saints sit there, and we will be able to know them by their fruit. We were talking to our kids the other night, and um, I won't tell you the full context of the conversation. They were, we were just talking about how the world works and, and, and politics and stuff like that, and, and the comment was simply, you know, there's a lot we don't know, but we'll know them by their fruit. And that's what Jesus said. Everyone who quotes Matthew, judge not lest you be judged, they forget that one or two chapters later he said, hey, you're going to know the Pharisees and the false teachers by their fruit. So we're going to know these people by their fruit. So, so what's the concern? All right, so we talked about the context. Context was guard the bank, guard the gospel. Above all else, that's what we strive for. And I'm looking around the room, and I, I know your stories, and we walk life. I feel really comfortable and confident in, in proclaiming and preaching that. But there will come a day whenever we have to deal with church discipline, no matter how close we are. And I'll tell you in brief about a situation that we had to walk through that was heartbreaking. But Paul's point, his context is guard the gospel. Here's his concern. Here's the fruit of the troublemakers. They seem to have a playbook, whether it's in Timothy or whether it's in Titus, they seem to have a playbook. And it's, it seems pretty common. Uh, Timothy, by the way, was in Ephesus. And Titus is in Crete, and yet if you compare the text in both of their books, the, the false teachers are following the same, the same playbook. You know why? Because false teachers have the same captain. They have the same guard that they report back to. Satan is orchestrating all this. Keep in mind that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, right? Second Corinthians says, even, if, um, Satan, or even as Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, so then can those who serve him. We need to keep our guard up. And so here's their playbook. They're going to insist on foolish controversies. That's what Titus says. On genealogies, on dissensions and quarrels about the law. You and I are probably okay, right? I'll come back to that here and say We're probably like, don't have to worry about that. But I like going and looking at some of the words rather than foolish because that sounds really nice. I'm usually a more black and white, blunt and direct guy. It's the, the better translation is probably stupid. Um, you can go back and you can translate it stupid controversies, stupid genealogy, stupid dissensions. That's what Paul is saying. Y'all, these people, basically their playbook is that they like to cause divisions and dissensions. They don't care about resolution. They care about making a statement, dropping the mic and walking away and just looking at the destruction of it all. That's what they absolutely enjoy. I have seen this at work in churches. I hate it. And what, what's weird for me, what's hard, is I can't really reconcile that in my mind. That this person who says that they love God, and I see some of that fruit, they also enjoy causing division and dissension in the church. I don't know how to sort that out, to be quite honest. I know how I want to be a peacemaker and strive for peace with all people. I know how I want to keep that unity. But then I read Titus. And then I look at the fruit of the Spirit, and I honestly don't know how to bring that all together, but here's the, here's the charge, church. We're not supposed to bring it all together. We can't see the heart. We're not supposed to deal with the heart. We deal with what we can see, but we trust God to deal with the heart. But the, the playbook seems to be stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. And I know you're probably thinking, well, we're good because we don't focus on Jewish genealogies because this all seems to have something rooted in the Jewish culture and in the law. 
and Ricky, we really just don't fight about that kind of stuff. So we're probably good. Okay, take that context and shift it to where we are in our culture, though. Yeah, we do too. We use our pulpits and our, our times at church, and you've seen it just like I have. We argue about church structure. Is it important? Yeah. Is it the main thing? No. We, we argue about politics, and we draw lines in the sand. We make our time of proclaiming the goodness of God time to promote politics. We argue, there, there's a term called worship wars. There's another term about venue wars. Where do you meet? What's the right way to meet? What songs do you sing? Which song is the right one to sing? Should you sing hymns or should you sing, should you sing the new? Like there are, worship, there are wars within the church that have been going on for decades. There's a First Baptist Church and then there's a Second Baptist Church. And sometimes it's because First Baptist planted Second Baptist, but sometimes it's because Second Baptist couldn't live with First Baptist, so they had to divide. Tell me divisions don't exist within the church. Sometimes the splits are healthy, and God does it intentionally, but sometimes it's a result of dissension within the church because people like to draw lines that were never meant to be drawn. We have preferences for doctrines that while they're important to us and we're passionate about them, they're not the chief thing that we should be honing in on. There are doctrines worth dying for, and then there are doctrines that just divide us. So, sometimes... Titus 3.9 really hits close whenever there are stupid controversies within the church. Maybe we don't focus on genealogies, but maybe we do whenever we start saying, well, I've always gone to this church. I'm the one who's not leaving this church. This is how this church is going to run. So maybe it's not about genealogy and proving that, that we are Jews and of Jewish heritage, but maybe it is proving that because we've been in a place for so long, that proves our faith. Dissensions means exactly what it means. There's a line drawn. You're going to follow me or you're going to follow the pastor. That happens in churches. You don't really believe what that teacher said. Let's go have coffee. All this stuff really happens. Quarrels about the law. Now the question is, why in the world would we even be tempted to, to, to pursue that or indulge it? I love how one commentator puts it because... They just, he just put it so simple. Listen to this. People are always eager to hear new and interesting things. That's just in our human nature. We love something new. We love something new. We want to hear it, but we must always compare any new teaching we hear with what is written in the Bible. And that's what we don't always do. We like this idea, and we'll hear this idea promoted, but how does it line up with Scripture? He goes on, he says, Some people... Uh, this. This was, I thought, very insightful. Some people are always seeking the truth but never finding it because they ask questions, but I'm sorry, and they ask questions but receive no answers because they do not accept the truth written in the Bible. So such people not only fall into error themselves, but listen to this, they lead others into error as well. And this is why church discipline or church accountability or the warning and how to respond is so important. It's not even so much what this person teaches or promotes, it's that other believers are affected by it as well. goes on, he says, we must guard it because believers, we don't want them to fall into error. So, 9, 10, and 11. Take a look at it again. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but kind of get that. He just says that there's going to be some stuff that comes up. And he tells, he's going to tell Titus how to deal with it. But what I want to warn you of before we move into what Titus is warned to do you know what we're tempted to do is to be tolerant and kind whenever we hear, because that's just what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be peacemakers, Ricky. Absolutely. Uh, Psalm 133 um, says how blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that runs down. It's like the anointing oil that runs down even the, the, the beard of Aaron. Because there God has commanded a blessing forevermore. Like we're supposed to be unified. Blessed are the peacemakers because they're called children of God. Ricky, we're just supposed to make peace. That's just what we're supposed to do, right? Except that he says very clearly here that we're not supposed to tolerate everything. We're not supposed to be kind about everything. Church, if we're not careful, we're going to be so careful and tolerant and kind that we're going to bring in destructive heresies and we're going to welcome them into the church and they're going to become the norm. What does Paul tell Timothy to do? Second point. He gives Timothy very clear instructions 
that I don't think in my limited time in seminary I was ever told. This is stuff you got to go to the Bible for, not pastoral counsel and not seminary. Here's what Titus is to do. He is to avoid all those things that were just listed. listed, I'm sorry. And Paul goes on, he says, after warning these people once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. That's not how I operate. I want to keep going back and instructing and teaching and walking alongside this person. This person becomes a project that I can fix. And what Paul says is avoid these people. Like avoid all this kind of stuff. What's the point of it? But we tend to focus, watch as we tend to focus on all of this stuff over here and we're not focusing on the gospel that he just proclaimed. When we come together, we're worried about the divisions and the controversies and the dissensions and the projects of people that we've got to fix. And we're not worried about in the loving goodness and kindness our God saved us because of His own mercy and grace. We don't come with hearts of thanksgiving and joy and we glory in the gospel. Instead, we come with our guard up. So, avoid. Warn them once. Warn them twice. Be done. I don't know. That... that That just doesn't line up with me, but that's what we're called to do. That means I have to be shaped now by the Word, and I don't try to shape the Word to my own mindset. And if you think that this is the only time that this advice shows up, then we need to go back to read the Bible more and more. In Corinthians, Paul tells them to cast out a guy who's sinning and refuses to quit sinning. In Timothy, he tells him the same thing. Avoid this kind of stuff. So, what do you think churches would look like if pastors would heed Paul's words here, if they would avoid the pointless controversies and the arguments and and they would warn those who cause divisions and then warn them twice and then just be done, what would churches begin to look like? And then I think in the back of my mind, we need to answer this. Is this unloving? That's probably whenever we say that doesn't seem fair, that doesn't seem right. Is that unloving? No. Y'all, you know what we are supposed to guard? We're supposed to guard the integrity of the church. Like, we don't gather together so we feel better. And man, I'm hoping that that, that everyone who's not with us today, I'm, I'm hoping that this is the, the podcast that they'll listen to because you need to know where we stand uh, on, on this issue. But this is not Ricky's church. It's not Cross Life's church. Y'all, this is God's church that He purchased with His blood and purified it with His own I'm sorry, He purified it with His own blood. He purchased us. He redeemed us. He called us together so that He could present a blameless bride to Himself. That's the church. That's why church accountability and church discipline matters. Is it unloving to draw a line in the sand? Is it unloving for me to discipline my children? No, I do that as an act of love so that they are raised up to maturity and know how to act and behave and be responsible. You know what? I also discipline them because I don't want them to embarrass me in public either. Right? We have church discipline because we're to be raised up to be mature and equipped and devoted to every good thing. But we're also representing God to this world. The holiness and the glory of Christ and God is on display when the church gathers. And how we function and move is what we present to the world is how God actually is in their mind. So, church discipline and accountability matters because God has said, I am holy, be holy as I am holy. We as a congregation want that now. Don't mishear me. You and I are going to sin. There's a practical reality of this. We're going to sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying when the body comes together, what does the body look like? Because it represents Christ to the world. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's why he says, don't get distracted by all this. You know what? Whenever I have something that bothers me, whether it's a smashed finger or whether it's a a cold symptom or something like that, it seems like the more I focus on it, the worse it seems to get. So Paul's advice to to Titus is actually pretty freeing. Ignore them. Like, just avoid them. Like, you know that guy's going to cause dissension. You know he's going to cause division. Don't get caught up in it. And it's advice that I tried tried to take into consideration. But is this unloving? If what we're trying to do is show the glory of God to the world, here's what Warren Wearsby said. He says, Some sympathizing, us, 
but untaught saints might say, but perhaps they have reformed this time. So you just said avoid them, but then warn them, and then warn them a second time, and then be done. But, but what if we do it just one more time because maybe they got it. Like maybe they figured it out. Maybe they've been reformed. And Warren Wearsby says that verse 11 makes it so clear. These people aren't going to reform. Look at verse 11 with me. Um, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. There are some people who absolutely will not reform as much as we want them to. You know why? Because they're warped and sinful and they're self-condemned. A better term for warped would be perverted. They've taken the goodness of God. They've taken... We, we tend to associate perversion with sexual immorality, but their whole mind is perverted. Their whole mind is twisted, and it's bent on evil and pursuit of themselves. And he says, do not indulge these people. It does absolutely no good. Instead, what Scripture seems to imply is that whenever God's working within someone, you should be able to warn them, right? Give them instruction. And then if that doesn't work, warn them again. And then they're, you're going to see the fruit of that turn. But in Corinthians, Paul got to a point where he says, cast that person out, hand him over to the devil for the salvation of his flesh. In other words, kick him out of the church so that whenever he's kicked out of the church, he will long for it, and that will bring about repentance, and he will come back. Nobody wants to preach this, by the way. But it's what needs to be preached. Part three. Here's the principle for biblical church discipline. Now, I've told you we use the term church discipline. It's a crucial term to me. Church accountability, I'm fine with. Um, whatever we need to call it. But, but what you and I need to understand is that whenever there's accountability within a church, sin needs to be called out. Not necessarily publicly. Not bring everyone to the front, but sin needs to be called out so that we can still progress in the gospel, so that we can protect the integrity of the church and the image of Christ. So here's a few warnings as we talk about church discipline and we, and we move to this final part. This is my practical advice to you. Church discipline must always be rooted in love for one another, love for God, and love for the glory of God. So if we do church discipline in our flesh, then it's not church discipline, it's just discipline. But if you and I love one another so much, and if we love God so much, and we're concerned with the glory of God so much, then church discipline absolutely must take place, but it will always be done in a loving, restorative way. Number two, church discipline must be rooted in biblical expectations, not our own, and practical application. So biblical expectations, but practical applications. So let's just say that, that I did something just really egregious, and I'm, I'm being held to account by the church, that expectation needs to come from the Bible. But it needs to be practically applied. It needs to be something that, that the person can actually live out. It's a, a standard that can be attained. And then number three, any church discipline that, is not, um, that does not come from faith or cultivate faith is not proper. So any church discipline that does not come from our faith or that does not promote faith is not going to be proper because true biblical church discipline is going to come from our faith and it's going to be, it's going to be meant to cultivate our faith and the other's faith more. John Calvin mentions three reasons for the maintenance of church discipline in the church. He says, here's what's at stake. Here's why we do it. Number one, the public honor of God and His church which must not appear to be a conspiracy of wicked and abandoned men. Number two, the preservation of the innocent from corruption through contact with evil. And number three, the encouragement of the fallen towards repentance. So three reasons that John Calvin says that church discipline must be maintained, the public honor of God and His church, the protection of the innocent from corruption, and the encouragement of the fallen towards repentance. In other words, those biblical elders they talked about in chapter 1 and how they contend with the false teachers and that biblical community, whenever they all come together, those biblical pastors and elders are to love the members of the church in such a way that the members are healthy, they're safe, and they're being equipped. 
And if we're allowing all this other to go on, then, the, then there's no longer safety for the innocent. There's no longer equipping for the saints. But we need to be careful that as we tolerate controversies and divisions for the sake of protecting our large numbers, our offerings, our reputations, that in fact is an unloving church and a loving pastor. To allow men and women to indulge in the sin that separates them from God and not call them to account is unloving to them and it's unloving to God and it corrupts the church. It's kind of counter to how we think about it. We just want to give them a loving environment, right? Absolutely. The most loving thing we can do is connect them to our Savior. Bobby Biggers had a, he just needs a t-shirt because whenever I think of Bobby Biggers, I think of this one saying, our greatest need is a Savior. And I'm, I know he can't be the only one. I mean, it's not, it's not a rocket science. It's nothing new in Scripture. Whenever I hear uh, Bobby Biggers' name, I can hear his voice go, our greatest need is a Savior. The most loving thing we can do is show them their need for a Savior. Y'all turn to Matthew 18 real quick. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus gives us a good framework for, for just good church discipline slash accountability. But choose the term you want. It all functions the same in my mind. Matthew 18, verse 15. I'm just saying, what if the church actually functioned the way that Jesus said it should function? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. What? Alone. Not to the church, not to Facebook, not to Twitter, not to what's a new thing, parlor, not Instagram, nothing else. It's whatever your brother has done against you, go tell him his fault alone. Handle this one-on-one so that you can reconcile and be fine. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But you know the word that I keep seeing in there is not just about the conflict resolution, it's the brother. Whenever we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we deal with conflict in a different way than the world would. The world's going to promote it and blast it on the internet. The world is going to go tell and get counsel with everybody else. But you know what we do within a church that functions as a way that God wants His church to function? If your brother sins against you or you got a problem with your brother or sister in Christ, then you go talk to them. We'll, we'll get to it. Um, look at the next verse, verse 16. If he doesn't listen, because that's going to happen... Take one or two others along with you. Not a posse, not your council of people who totally agree with you, but you bring one or two others along with you so they can mediate that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. Then, after you've done everything else, you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to us, the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, there's a progression here for how you and I should live in community, yes, with peace, but it's how we also deal with conflict. Because you know what Jesus is implying there? Is that whenever messy people come together, there's going to be a mess, and there's a way that we handle things. It's actually at the end of this passage, a couple of verses down, that it says that where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. We like to use that to talk about church, but the context of that verse of where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. That's actually in the context of conflict resolution within the church. How you and I handle conflict and dissension and division within the church as brothers and sisters in Christ glorifies Christ and glorifies God. That's what we should aspire to. Okay, flip to one more passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 through 15, and then we will land the plane. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. This is Paul writing again to another church, and it's going to illustrate one more time church discipline slash accountability in action, but it's also going to do this for us. It's going to clarify the heart. It's going to show us the discipline or accountability, but it's going to show us the heart. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15 says this, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, 
Take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Man. I mean, that's like whenever you have the substitute teacher come in and they're watching the class and Brooke talks out of turn, so you just write Brooke's name up here and then she starts getting check marks for keep talking out of turn. That's what he says. Here's my letter to the, third, to the church at Thessalonica. Paul says, if people aren't listening to what we have to say, which is coming from God as he moves us to instruct you, and you know this is all true, if that person doesn't listen, then you need to write their name down. And you know what? You need nothing to do with them. Why? So that they will be ashamed. That's discipline, that's accountability. But now look at the heart of it. 15. Don't regard him as an enemy. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a what? A brother. The heart of church discipline and accountability is not to divide and cause division and hurt, it's to restore back. But make no doubt about it, the more you and I walk in life together, the more I'm just going to frustrate you. Not because I want to, but because I'm just going to do it. I hope I don't, but it's going to happen probably. I'm a realist. You bring imperfect people together, there's going to be imperfections. Do not regard one another as an enemy, but as a brother. Warn him. But you know what? He, it echoes what we saw in Titus and in Timothy. Avoid people who act this way. Warn them. So there's a progression. So all this is the ultimate heart of the church discipline. If we're going to live out Acts 2.42, which is what we kind of hold up as our banner verse, and we're going to be, to be devoted to God and to one another, then we must consider what it means to love one another as a brother and sister. I'm one of seven kids. My brothers and sisters... And I, we fought, we punched, we kicked. I know how to look at my sister and not say a word and make her so mad at me to where she would want to hit me. Because brothers and sisters know how to do that. But nobody else gets to mess with my brothers and sisters. Right? If I saw my sister doing something whenever we were growing up or she saw me, then we knew that we could say something to one another and it was for one another's good. And that's how an Acts 2.42 church functions. To be devoted to one another and to God means that we're going to aspire for the holy living. And whenever we don't see that or we're concerned that somebody's not going to reach it, we come alongside as a brother or sister and we carry them along. To care for one another, y'all, means that we do pray for one another, we bear with one another, we lift one another up, and we lovingly warn them for the sake of their soul that what they're doing is wrong. The integrity of Christ, who He is, is on display whenever we gather together. The church that He's brought together is His namesake in this world. And as we proclaim the gospel, you need to understand that as the gospel is sown, Satan's going to come in and he's going to put in the thorns and the thistles and the weeds. I've only seen what I would call on a grand scale. I've only seen church discipline done on a grand scale once. And there was a church that we were at before, uh, a brother in Christ who, um, and he was just a great guy. He, you loved him. He, he was always going to be there to help you. He was going to serve you. Always had a smile on his face, served in ministry. Um, I mean, just a great guy. And then um, he ends up going to seminary. The church helps fund that. They, they provide books. Uh, he's going to seminary and then doing work for people within the church um, on the side. And, I mean, this is just someone you absolutely love. And then I got a call one day from, from a, another member of the church, uh, a brother in Christ, and he said, hey, we got to talk. You're not going to believe what's going on. And everything about this other guy was fake. Was taking church money, was deceiving people within the church, not fully doing the work that he said he was going to do, not even enrolled in seminary. I mean, all of it was a facade. And church discipline had to take place because at that point, it had, this, this deception had reached the entire church. Why is that an encouragement to you? <laughs> because in all my years in church, I've only seen it on that scale once. But it just shows the reality of it. It was so close. And it was so near. And we had no idea. But I'm thankful for the leadership that was in place 
that when they saw how near it was and how deep it had gone, they took action. And the church was health, was healthier for it. Okay, so what I don't want you to have is this is not also... Um, this is not us triggering some sort of church discipline uh, SWAT team to come after everybody and to inspect you. Um, that's, there, there's no SWAT team coming out. This is really just, I believe, a biblical call to church discipline and accountability. It's telling us to be mindful um, and, and to be careful to protect that unity and to be bold and courageous enough to protect the unity of the church, to focus on the main thing, and the main thing is the gospel, and anything that distracts or pollutes the water of the gospel, whenever we come together, whenever we can't come to glory in Christ, then we need to step back and say, okay, what are the divisions doing now? Three closing thoughts, and they're quick. What Christ has died for, y'all, we must be willing to fight for. Number two, what Christ has called out of the world, us, we must protect it from the world so that the church no longer looks like the world. That was one of my convictions uh, as we were planting, is that so much so the church has, be- has begun to look like the world so that, well, Ricky, of course there's going to be divisions. I mean, it's, it's kind of like us saying, well, of course I'm going to sin today. That's not how it's supposed to be, though. The church is not supposed to look like the world. And number three, y'all, what Christ has created, we cannot let selfishness or sin corrupt it. And that's the call to biblical accountability. Lord God, I pray that you are glorified with this message. I thank you for the time to be able to dwell in it. Thank you that you put up detour cones that say, hey, you think you're going this way, but you're actually going that way. We see this in Paul's missionary journeys where he believes and he desires to go one direction and you lead him another direction for your glory. So Lord, with this, I pray that you do a work that glorifies you, that calls us to account and that purifies us as a church and gives us a clear purpose that we gather together as your church that you have purified and made blameless by the blood of your Son for your glory to this world. Lord, we do not pray for great numbers. We pray for holiness. We don't pray that we have a great reputation within the city. We pray that we can make you beautiful to this world. Lord God, give us the conviction and the courage to live out the gospel life that you have called us to, that we live for you and not ourselves. We thank you for your loving kindness and mercy that saved us by your righteousness and not our own. May we be humbled by that. And may we encourage one another in the gospel. Amen.